Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water, we appear to be being dragged back to the beach by the government who are getting increasingly jittery about the second wave of coronavirus, which according to Health Secretary Matt Hancock this morning is now sweeping across Europe. Well, it wasn't sweeping across Europe yesterday because apparently Boris Johnson said it might be coming, not sweeping across Europe. So here's the new advice. Don't go anywhere. Don't hug anyone. Don't book anything. Don't make any plans to go anywhere. But whatever you do, make sure you get back to work and help stimulate the economy. And don't forget to wear a mask. This morning, we will be attempting to guide you through what the hell is going on inside Downing Street and with the health officials of this country who appear to be ruling the place with an iron fist. They're now making plans to lengthen quarantine, despite hints earlier this week that they might shorten it. Now, surely to heavens, we are not dealing with a government here who is putting things out there in newspapers only to find that people don't like the look of it and then they completely reverse the strategy. Surely that's not going on, is it? We need to hear from you once more today because, quite frankly, this is all a bit of a shambles, isn't it? 03444991000. First up, though, today we are joined by Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit Party, freshly returned from a trip to Italy and ready to continue his investigations into the illegal migrant racket that plagues our shores. Today, he's going to reveal where the people who arrive in all those dinghies on a daily basis actually end up. Plus, we'll get his view on the upcoming American election as well. He might even have a view on how this government is actually handling uh, the travel business right now because I'm sure he'll agree with me. It's not exactly brilliant, is it? You won't want to miss it. 03444991000. Later on, uh, we're getting a guided tour of the holiday business with Simon Calder from The Independent. He'll tell us what the latest advice on where to go and where not to go is. And we'll be asking why the government's new fat czar has decided to single out Percy Pigs as the enemy of healthy eating. When I mean, he could have picked on anything. I don't know why he's picked on them. Loads more, of course, plus your calls, your opinions and your news because we are the voice of common sense. We are the home of common sense. Very much with your help. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to yet another day in the dangerous world of international journalism. I'm looking out on the blue skies of London. Beautiful hot weather coming. It's going to be 33 to 34 degrees, apparently, tomorrow. And that can only mean one thing. There's going to be a lot more dinghies arriving on the uh, beaches of Dover uh, and Hastings uh, as we go. Let's talk to the man who knows all about that, Mr Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit Party. Nigel, a very good morning to you. Good morning. And you're absolutely right. Beautiful day. Uh, Very calm seas. Uh, and my intelligence is that so far, 11 dinghies have been apprehended and brought into Dover already this morning. Well, given, you know, on average, there's a dozen to 15 people on most of them. You can see we're already well over 100 people that have come in so far today. And just get a handle on this, because one of the reasons that I went out a couple of months ago to expose this is the pace is increasing. In 2018, 
300 people came via that route. In 2019, just under 2,000 came via that route. We are on course, Mike, this year for 7,500. And what I was trying to do was to alert people to it. Yes, and incredibly, Nigel, you have alerted everybody to it. And yet, um, aside from talk radio, hardly anybody else is paying any attention to it. Yeah, well, I'm afraid there is, um, across mainstream media, um, a view that things like illegal immigration can't be discussed because if you even debate it, you know, a finger will get pointed at you and you'll be accused of racism and xenophobia and goodness knows what else. Uh, when actually what we're talking about here is, you know, properly controlling our borders, protecting ourselves uh, from importing more COVID-19. And, and here's the real kicker, you know, over the course of the last month, we have seen two horrible, murderous attacks carried out by people who have failed asylum seekers. If you haven't got a clue where these young men come from, you're potentially putting yourself in a security uh, difficulty as well. And yet, as you say, mainstream media will not talk about it, which is why the Ofcom report that has come out this morning shows that public trust in the BBC and other organisations is literally collapsing. Yes, and it's hardly surprising. I mean, I have, have said this many times this year. Uh, I never thought I would be so ashamed of my uh, media colleagues as I now find myself to be, because it quite frankly is appalling the way that stories are reported, the way that stories are not reported, uh, and the way that language is used to kind of pretend that something is happening when it clearly isn't. Yeah, I mean, you know, Pretty Patel keeps making tough statements. Um, if any of your listeners choose to write to the Home Office to ask for an explanation of what's going on on the channel, uh, they will get the sort of bog-standard reply that we uh, are, are working in close cooperation with the French authorities, uh, that we do actually deport people. Uh, you know, it, it just is nonsensical. And I, I kind of wonder, because I know that Priti Patel herself would like to get tough on this. I just feel that she's part of a Conservative government and cabinet uh, that aren't really very conservative and don't have the will to do anything about it. Remember, Australia faced this 10 years ago. Australia ended the problem. Uh, but it's not just, I mean, I think, you know, the vast majority of people who hear about these, and when I say young men, you know, bear in mind that over 80% of those that are coming in through Dover are young males between the ages of 18 and 26 coming from all over the world in many cases, they have no documentation, so it's difficult for us to know really who they actually are. But if people are angry about that, let me promise you something, they'll be even angrier when they find out later on today exactly where these people go, how many of them there are, and what the cost of the British taxpayer is. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you about, because you put a tweet out this morning basically saying, where do all the illegal migrants that come into Dover go? Yesterday, I went to find out. Now, without wishing to uh, to sort of, you know, give away too much, uh, if you want to release it later on, what can you tell us? I, I can tell you that at 4.30 on my social media, you will see a video, uh, and this is me, uh, in response to my, to, to, to my films in the channel. A lot of members of the public emailed in to say, something really fun is happening to our local hotel. Uh, it appears to be full. Uh, and one of the reports I got uh, was from Bromsgrove in Worcestershire, mm -hmm. in the West Midlands. Um, and I was told that the Hilton Hotel Bromsgrove was now full with 147 young men, um, asylum seekers, illegal migrants, you can choose the, the phrase which you prefer. So I went up yesterday uh, to Bromsgrove 
to investigate this. Um, and I walked through the front door um, and asked whether I could book a room. I was told, no, we're closed. Oh, yeah. I said, but you can't be closed. I can see lots of people milling about. No, we're closed. And if you go onto the website um, of the uh, Bromsgrove Hilton, you'll find their book for the rest of the year. And the reason is that the government uh, have taken over the hotel. They've given the contract uh, to a big company called Serco. Uh, and we are now, and just get ready for this, we are now in hotels and private accommodation. We are currently housing 48,000 people who have illegally come into the United Kingdom uh, who are waiting uh, for a very long period of time to have their uh, asylum claims dealt with. Even if their asylum claims are rejected, which in most cases they will be, they still won't be forced to leave the United Kingdom. So we're putting people up in four-star hotels, uh, giving them food, uh, giving them £40 a week spending money, free health care, free dental care. And you know, Mike, the estimated cost of this over the next 10 years and the contracts that have been given out to these big companies, it's four billion sterling, all right? I mean, that is a vast sum of money. And that estimate was made before the increase in numbers that are coming in this year. So it's going to be even bigger than mm. that. And, and, and That's extraordinary. You know, that is absolutely it, extraordinary, Nigel. I'm not quite it sure. It is extraordinary. I think, I think I'm going to ask you to repeat the numbers again, because I think people are going to be listening to this going, actually, I can't believe my ears. 48,000 yeah, well, people. They, I tell you what they can't believe, and that is that nobody, and I mean nobody, in our national broadcasters, in our national newspapers, has done anything about this story. They all think it's too difficult, too awkward, too embarrassing. So the figures are, we are currently housing in hotels and private houses, 48,000 people, over 80% of whom are young men between the ages of 18 and 26. And the estimated cost of this for the next 10 years is four billion pounds and that is an underestimate. And of course, you know, the other side of this story, and it was revealed a little bit, I think, in Leicester the other week and with some of the fruit uh, picking farms, yeah. is that once they, once they get rejected, because they're not refugees, they're not, you know, under the 1951, you know, Geneva Convention definition of refugees, very few of these people qualify. When they're rejected, they stay in the country and then go into effectively the slave economy, which we know is booming yeah. in many parts of this country. And, you know, frankly, a lot of our big employers are totally unscrupulous about this. You know, we should be hanging our heads in shame yeah. that this kind of thing is going on in modern day Britain. Well, all you've got to do uh, to, 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 to sort of double uh, check all of that that you've just told us is look at what happened in Glasgow. Um, just a few weeks ago, uh, where a hotel, which was full of asylum seekers, right in the centre of Glasgow, I think it was in Bath Street, which I know well, um, yep. and there was, uh, you know, a guy went berserk with a, with a knife and stabbed a police officer and tried to stab many other people, um, and it turned out that the entire hotel was full of asylum seekers. Yeah, I mean, look, we must be slightly careful. Uh, you know, not every single person that comes in to the country, uh, you know, is going to behave badly. But, but you know... When we saw this in 2015 across the Mediterranean, do you remember the very large numbers crossing the Mediterranean? Yeah. Um, and when Mr. Juncker, um, on behalf of the European Union, basically said anyone that sets foot on EU soil will be allowed to stay. You know, when that happened, ISIS publicly said, we will use this route 
to get our operatives into London. And here's a very sobering thought. Of the eight men that committed those appalling barbarities in Paris just a few years back, five of them had got into France by crossing the Mediterranean on small boats. Mm. So there is a very real security issue here. And the first duty of the British government should be to protect its people. And we're not, Mike, we're not having that debate and we should be. Yes, exactly. Because quite frankly, and I'm certainly not suggesting that that all of these people could be a danger, but at the very least, they need to be tested for COVID-19 because it makes a complete mockery of an already (laughs) shambolic kind of idea of quarantine. Last time you and I spoke, I think, about this, I said the only way to get onto the beach at Hastings is to arrive illegally from France because everybody else was told that the beaches were closed, right? But if people are being told when they come back from a perfectly safe place like the Canary Islands uh, that they have to quarantine for, for 14 days and yet a thousand people you say are arriving today who won't have to quarantine no, at no, all. no 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 not a thousand i'm saying i'm saying well over a hundred today yeah. just, just 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 be clear about that but you know there was a a, a a boat taken into malta earlier this week with 85 people on board and the maltese authorities tested them for covid19 and 65 of them tested positive good so there me. are real um and more broadly i mean you know your point um, about quarantine and all the rest of it. You know, if we were testing people at airports, if we had an effective test and trace scheme, and don't forget, Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock told us it would be a world-beating test and trace regime. If we had that, we wouldn't need to quarantine anybody. No, of course. And that, of that is the, the, the sort of the hole in, in the whole story, isn't it? Because, I mean, you've been away, you were in Italy, and uh, I presume you know, it looked like it was pretty normal activities going on in Italy. The restaurants are open, the bars are open, you know, um, you sent a couple of pictures back. It looks as though life is relatively OK there. Um, you come back here and there's no problem at all. Why is it that, that this, this kind of, you know, we seem to be being held hostage now by our chief medical officer who seems to think that we're never going to get out of this? Well, I mean, I think there is a very real risk, isn't there, of a second wave? And just looking at the numbers, uh, you know, we're seeing it now in Belgium and all over Europe. Looking at the numbers, they are concerning. Of course they are. Mm. But it's, look, we cannot, we just simply cannot go back into full lockdown. Uh, You know, millions of people uh, just will not be able economically or even socially to survive that properly. So what we've got to learn to do is to live with this. Um, And those that are very vulnerable, for them, it's incredibly tough because they're going to face perhaps very long periods uh, of being cut off from their families and their friends. But we've got to learn to live with this. And that means, you know, testing and tracing. You know, we were promised that back in May this would be happening. Uh, And I bet, you know, if we ask your listeners now how many of them have actually actually been contacted by the test and trace system, we'd find it was alarmingly low. We have to learn to live with the virus, and that means the government has to get on top of this. And at the moment, it's all words and no delivery. Yeah, because at the moment, the line coming out of Downing Street is that there's no point in testing people as they arrive back at the airport because it's not a silver bullet. It's not the answer. Well, if it's not the answer, then why are we testing anyone? Well, quite. I mean, look, you know, what really... I mean, of, of, of everything in the last five or six months, the thing that made me the angriest was the day that Lombardy in Northern Italy locked down. On that day, 17 flights came in from Milan's Malpensa airport into UK airports Mm. without a single person being tested. And we know 
that the main spread of coronavirus in the early stages in the United Kingdom came from those flights coming in from Italy. So we do nothing at the outbreak of the crisis uh, and we wait four or five months and then start with six hours notice to put quarantines on Spain. I mean, it really isn't joined up in any way at all. It's really not. And you, of course, got some grief, didn't you, when you went over to Tulsa uh, to see uh, Mr. Donald Trump, the president of the United States? Yes. Uh, people said, why is he going to the pub? He's a disgrace. Absolutely awful man. You know, which they would have said whether you went to the pub or not, no doubt. But well, of course. Um, do tell us what you made of uh, Joe Biden's performance um, that, that we saw overnight, uh, <coughs> seemingly not actually knowing where he was. Well, didn't know where he was. And you might have also seen a young aide uh, was grabbing him by the arm and dragging him around the place as mm. if he didn't know where he was going. Look, I'm, I'm very worried um, about the Joe Biden situation, very worried indeed, uh, because I want Biden to get through the Democratic convention. Um, I want Biden to be the presidential candidate for the Democrat Party, because I know that when it comes to those three head-to-head debates, which, of course, the Americans have been having since 1960, you know, Donald Trump will tear him to pieces because he doesn't, as you say, know where he is. So I'm going to go easy on Joe Biden today because otherwise they might ditch him <laughs> and get somebody quite efficient. Yeah, well, I mean, as long as it's not Hillary Clinton, I suppose. But I mean, it's astonishing, really, isn't it, that the Democrats are in such a bad way that Joe Biden is the finest man they can find to run against uh, President Trump. Well, I mean, similarly, of course, four years ago, Hillary Clinton was a very, very tainted candidate in every way. Um, so they are making life as easy for the Republicans as they possibly can. Um, there is a perception that Trump has not had um, a great COVID as leader. Um, but I tell you something, all those newspaper reports that are telling you day after day that Biden's 11 points in the lead, that it's all over, that, that, that you know, Trump is finished. He's out of the door um, on November the 3rd when the election takes place. I would just say this to them. Do not underestimate Donald Trump. A lot of people have made that mistake in business and politics over many years. And secondly, when you look at the polling, it's very interesting. Over half of Joe Biden's people who say they'll vote for him say they're going to vote for him because they don't much like the other guy. It, there is no positive vote out there for Joe Biden. Mm. Um, and if your voters, if there, if there are any motivation to vote for you, is they're not keen on the other guy, it means their propensity to actually go out and vote on November the 3rd is much, much lower. Um, so I think for that reason, and also, you know, national polls that show an 11 point lead for Biden. Do you know what? If in California, which bear in mind has got a population of 40 million, if in California, Joe Biden wins by 8 million, it makes no difference mm. because he, he's going to win that state anyway. What really matters are the five to 10 key swing states. And in those states, Whilst at the moment Trump's behind, he is no further behind than he was at this stage in 2016. So my message to people would be never underestimate Donald Trump. No, I say exactly the same thing. Nigel, listen, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Again, we should look out uh, for 4.30 uh, when you release the report and the real story of what is going on uh, with the illegal migrant business in this country. Nigel Farage, head of the Brexit Party. Thank you very much indeed. Extraordinary uh, revelations from Nigel there. 48,000 people living in hotels at cost to the British taxpayer of approximately four billion quid.
Now, why is it that nobody's talking about this? Why is it that Pretty Patel has not addressed this matter? And where is the money coming from? And how much more of this are we supposed to put up with? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Lucy Fraser, Prisons and Probation Minister, because the government uh, has been asking for more people to come and work in the probation service, uh, and now a 1,000 more probation officers have indeed been hired. Uh, Lucy, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, Tell us about uh, these 1,000 new probation officers. Where have they come from? Uh, Have they been recruited from from other sort of um, uh, areas of of government work or other areas of of civil service, or, or are they sort of brand new starters? Uh, Well, we're running a a very extensive recruitment campaign. At the moment, we already have 800 uh, probation officers in training, and we are aiming, as you mentioned, to have uh, 1,000 new ones starting in addition to that. And that will increase uh, those in our workforce by almost a third. I should explain a little bit perhaps what probation officers do, because we all know that police are responsible for investigating crime and catching criminals and bringing them to court. But probation officers are really our unsung heroes. And it's a job of a probation officer to work with those people that the police catch and uh, who go to court and uh, to help turn their lives around. So they're a really critical part of helping stopping crime and stopping reoffending. Certainly, that's true. There's been a, quite a bit of controversy around the release of prisoners, though, hasn't there? Because I believe I'm right in saying that before the sort of lockdown, or as the lockdown was happening, quite a few prisoners were released because of fears of, of COVID-19 uh, infection inside of prisons. Is that Are those people who were released still out there, or have they been taken back in? You're right to identify that. You will know that at the beginning of the outbreak, uh, we were as the, uh, very concerned about the potential impact of the virus in prisons. We saw in a number of other countries riots in prisons. You know, we saw, you remember, on the ship, a uh, very closed environment. Uh, we saw that that infection could spread very, very quickly uh, through a closed environment. And so we were predicting in prisons that we would see two and a half to three and a half thousand deaths across our prisons. And so we needed to take action immediately uh, to ensure that the the health and safety of our prisoners as well as our staff. And we put in place a number of measures. Uh, For example, we brought additional accommodation onto the prison site. We made sure we got through cases, uh, through the courts as quickly as possible so we could release people um, who shouldn't be in prison. And we also introduced, as you rightly mentioned, the early temporary release scheme. And uh, through that, uh, we said we would release some prisoners. We haven't had to release the number of prisoners that we anticipated. Um, that scheme is still in operation um, as we, uh, but uh, obviously we'll review that uh, as the, as time goes on. Right. And we, we're told quite often as well, Lucy, that prisons are woefully um, sort of inadequate in terms of the amount of space that they have in them and the amount of prisoners that they have to accommodate. Is there any plans, you know, for the government to sort of expand the number of prisons or to build any new prisons for the expanding kind of criminal uh, fraternity, if you like? Absolutely, there is. So we have announced a few months ago an additional £2.5 billion investment into uh, prison building. Uh, That's 10,000 additional places uh, to ensure that we have sufficient capacity to house those who come through our courts. Uh, You will know, and uh, there were some figures out today about police recruitment. We have an um, 
we have an aim of uh, recruiting an additional 20,000 uh, police officers and the stats out today uh, show that we've recruited 4,000 of those. And of course, as there is more police activity, there will be uh, more criminals will be caught and we need to ensure that they uh, have a safe and decent place uh, to be rehabilitated and that's the investment and two of a half billion that the government is making in prison. Yes. And of, of these new recruits that you've got coming into the probation service, are they sort of spread out across the country? Um, are they centred in one particular place? They, uh, they'll be uh, across the country, but we're, we've got, we have specific recruitment campaigns uh, in the South. It's uh, harder to recruit uh, probation officers in the South. We also want to have a more diverse mix uh, of probation officers. We want them to reflect society as a whole. 75% of our probation officers at the moment are women. So we, we're really keen to have more men. It's a critical role in helping people mm. turn their lives around. We want more black people. We want more Asian people. So we've got uh, a, an extensive recruitment campaign to try and ensure that we have a diverse uh, a, a diverse selection of people coming through as well as more of them. Yeah, it's unusual to have so many women, isn't it? Why do you think that is? Well, I, uh, well, I, I think we need to have everyone. And, and uh, uh, because we, uh, people are working with people, different types of people, and of course, we need to reflect society uh, as a whole. Um, so you, you uh, no, I'm just wondering I, I why, why so many women are actually doing the job. It's just you know, there's not many jobs where mostly women do it rather than men. Well, I think like the teaching profession and the social work profession, um, it attracts uh, women who want to help people turn uh, others' lives around. But of course, that's not exclusive to women. There's a lot of men who are very skilled in that uh, and able to do so. And we would like to attract more of them. OK. Now, the big question, Lucy, is where are you going on holiday? Uh, are you going to get trapped in Spain like Grant Shapps was? Uh, I, uh, no, I'm <laughs> staying in England. Um, and, uh, very so wise. I won't, I won't be trapped anywhere. No, that's very good. Well, nice to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Lucy Fraser there, uh, Prisons and Probation Minister, on the news that they are hiring. I've already hired about another 800 probation officers are going to hire more. Um, and luckily, uh, you'll be pleased to know, they did not actually free as many people uh, as they said they were going to do. Because I know a lot of people listening to this show were a bit concerned that just before the old uh, uh, pandemic sort of properly locked down, there was talk that many of the prisons may be emptying their uh, their their doors or emptying their their cells because people in the prisons were running a risk of actually catching COVID-19, um, which, to be honest, I wouldn't have been that worried about. I'd rather they didn't let them out. It sounds as though they didn't let them out in quite as many numbers as, uh, as we thought they might. Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots more to do. We're going to be talking to the Vice President of the National Farmers Union coming up. We're going to take more of your calls as well. Uh, you know what to do. The number, of course, is 0344 499 1000. Right now, though, I'm going to talk to Susan Hall, Conservative Leader at the London Assembly, because a story uh, came across our desks late yesterday afternoon uh, about Enfield Council, uh, which is up sort of North London way. Uh, apparently, uh, they're going to serve only vegan and vegetarian meals uh, when they host events over the course uh, of the next few years because they want to save the climate. The climate emergency means no more meat eating, uh, which seems to me to be an absolutely ludicrous idea. Susan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
morning to you. Now, yes, it's, um, it's a ridiculous story. Well, it really is, isn't it? I mean, I tried this at Goldsmiths College, it seems to me, didn't they, earlier in the year or at the back end of last year, banning burgers. And then after, after a while, even the nutters down there decided it was a good idea to actually bring them back. It's crazy. I mean, this was uncovered by our uh, Conservative leader, Joanne LeBan, uh, in Enfield. I mean, is this the right time to be thinking of this nonsense? We need to be looking after the local farmers. We need to be looking after the butchers. Um, we need to be thinking of far more important things than this. But um, well done, Enfield Council. Ridiculous. <laughs> well, exactly right. I mean, they can't even have any events at the moment, presumably. So I mean, it's all a bit of a sort of a busted flush yeah. to be talking about, it, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. But... I mean, some of these councils, uh, well, we despair, don't we, Mike? Well, we really do. We despair. I mean, the trouble is, as you know, Susan, this will probably be something uh, which starts in Enfield and ends up in sort of, you know, Battersea. And suddenly they'll all get together and decide, oh, all the local councils in different parts of uh, of London will suddenly think, oh, this is a good idea. Yes, it becomes an all. It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, who's ever heard of choice? we well, well exactly. But also there's no you, there's, I do. Well also there is no a correlation that you can make scientifically between not eating meat and saving the planet. It's it's a kind of a vegetarian trope which means nothing. Yes. Well, I, I mean it's just all too stupid for words. I mean um, it's sort of extinct it's an extinction rebellion theory, isn't it? Oh yes, and they'll they'll raise their heads again soon, I'm sure. Well, I wonder where, um, they've all, where have they all gone, by the way, Susan? Because we, there was a time when you couldn't walk around London without tripping over a couple of people from Extinction Rebellion lying on the ground or, you know, tra- tra- chaining themselves to a fence somewhere. They seem to have all disappeared back into their uh, home county's mansions with mummy and daddy. Yes, let's be very grateful for that, Mike. <laughs> be grateful for small mercies. Yes. Um, that's one thing that's come out of the virus that is good. That would have to be it. Well, I mean, there's a lot of bad things coming out of the virus, and not least uh, your friend and, uh, well, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say friend and colleague, Sadiq Khan, uh, your other opposite number, I suppose I should say, uh, who apparently thinks that Brexit is a worse uh, a cat- catastrophe than the coronavirus. Yes, it, it, that ca- I'm chairman of the audit cam- uh, panel, and that came up that they thought that it was just as bad. I mean, here we go again, their obsession with Brexit. Um, they won't give up on that, I don't think. But uh, that came through an audit panel report, which I thought was extraordinary. And yeah. they uh, reinforced it when I asked them questions on it. So, yes. How is, he, how is he behaving himself these days, by the way? Because, I mean, I know you try to keep tabs on him. It's not an easy thing to do. Well, I, I refer to him as our missing mayor because I don't know where he was during the virus, but uh, he wasn't to be seen. He wouldn't come to any more meetings, which, you know, we wanted to discuss what was going on in London, uh, where there was help being given, etc. He refused to do that until he was almost taken there dr- uh, screaming. Um, uh, you know my opinion of uh, our missing mayor. It's, it's not a good opinion. No. But, um, I mean... One of the areas I'm so concerned about are our black cabs. And I know you are as well. There are poor black cabs out there. People don't realise that they're little businesses, as it were. They're sole traders. They have to pay an absolute fortune for their cab. They should always be allowed to go where buses go and they're being stopped in, in places there. And some of these streetscape things, I fully accept we've got to encourage cycling and walking absolutely for those that are able to do it we have got to but if we're going to cause have we absolute mayhem why do we have streets, to encourage it 
I mean, we don't have no, to because, encourage it, do we? Um, there's no harm in encouraging it. Well, if, there is. If people, especially younger people, want to get um, younger fit people want to get on a bike, and I know lots of people that enjoy it, that's fine. But equally, it should be fine for road users to use their cars if they can't get on the public train. Yeah, but road users moment. are also paying now 15 quid for the privilege of driving into London. Some people are having to do it because that's the way they have to get to work. Some people are having to do it because that is their form of work that they do drive for a living and they have to pay that, that fee. People on bikes don't. So, you know, that's already oh, a no. good enough encouragement, isn't it? I know. Well, um, yes. I mean, we, we, mustn't, we mustn't say it isn't right to encourage um, cycling walking because we have got to get fitter as a nation quite frankly but there are very many people who can't do that i couldn't i couldn't cycle into city hall from where i live it would be impossible yeah. so some of us have to either drive or use public transport well exactly right and nobody's really using public transport at the moment which is creating a massive problem for tfl uh, who are running such a big deficit now that they're asking for another bailout aren't they yes they are um i'm chairman of budget we're going to be looking at um the budget reports that come around for TFL. There are so many people earning over 100k there. They've got um, a scheme by which um, all the employees can give a free, uh, a free transport pass, if you like, yeah. to a flatmate even, which costs about 44 million pounds. It's crazy. That's madness, isn't crazy. it? But that's the yeah. point. I mean, you know, I, even if even if I was to allow you the possibility of encouraging people to do something, what I don't want to see uh, is what Boris Johnson has just announced, which is a two billion pound scheme to subsidise Halfords to fix everybody's bike up for them, uh, and then to kind of give people discounts on buying bikes with taxpayers' money. I just think that's entirely wrong. Uh, there's various thoughts on that I, I accept i mean how we spend taxpayers money is very important having said that if we don't get the nation fitter that costs taxpayers a fortune because of the national health service so we, i could argue either way to be honest with you but we definitely it's not, it's not bad to get people in better condition i mean one of the real problems with this virus apparently is obesity mm. we do have to deal with that goodness knows how um and, and trying to encourage people to cycle and uh, and walk is fine. But, I mean, if you just go down Park Lane, I'm sure you drive down there. I drove down there the other day because I had to be in City Hall. And they've taken half of one side of the road away. Right. There were no cyclists on it at all. Right. There was absolute congestion. That can't be good for the environment. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's um, one thing. Yeah. It's all very well saying let's encourage people to cycle. But because of the way they're doing it, there's more pollution actually in the air now than there was probably two years ago. I, I don't know about that. I haven't seen the figures. But yes, I mean, it, it, it causes terrible problems in some of the roads. What they need is far more flexibility on that, where it doesn't work. And I don't think it's working in the Oval tri Triangle and around there. Where it doesn't work, they should take these schemes out again very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely right. But they don't seem to be doing that. All they do it is in one direction only. Listen, Susan, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Susan All, Conservative leader at the London Assembly. Once again, uh, Sadiq Khan is missing in action. Um, we haven't bothered asking him on the show today because we've asked him so many times to come on the show uh, and he's constantly declined um, that we've more or less given up asking him to come on the show. We might take it up again soon, um, but he clearly is not 
somebody who wants to face proper scrutiny. He quite likes being asked questions by people who don't really ask very hard questions. And he loves going on grandstanding about Brexit, grandstanding about how London is open, grandstanding about how great we are and how close we are to the European Union. But if you want to ask him anything about knife crime, you want to ask him anything about Transport for London and their bloated, overweight, ridiculous administration, he has nothing to say and nobody to say it to. Isn't that surprising? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let's talk to our favourite uh, chair of the National Obesity Forum, Mr Tam Fry, because obesity, Tam, a very good afternoon to you, appears to be the order of the day. Uh, day and night, I would say, at the moment. Yes, I mean, it's all everybody's talking about. What do you make of the government's plan uh, to try and make everybody lose a little bit of weight? Um, and are they doing it the right way? In a few words, I welcome the initiative uh, but it doesn't go far enough. Mm. And interestingly enough, uh, when the announcement was made on Monday, there were about uh, seven or eight measures which the government said it would put in. Right. And then you read the actual document, and on the last page of the document it says, oh, and by the way, in the future we've got to do another ten measures. So what has happened is that the government is letting us in slowly to what is in store for us. And it's really the measures which have yet to be announced which are going to be the really important ones. No, quite. I mean, the thing for me, uh, Tam, is that I'm not very keen on the government telling me what to do. And I know that you and I may differ on this, but I'm also yeah. not very keen on them offering a sort of uh, inducement in one way or another. Uh, for example, get on a bike. Here's 50 quid to go and get your old bike fixed. You know, taxpayers' money to the tune of £2 billion being used to try and, you know, make the country fit again. I mean, surely you have to do a lot more than that in order to change the mindset of the way people eat. Because, I mean, as I say, I've got this Percy Pigs here in front of me. Anybody who's stupid enough to think that that is a healthy foodstuff would have to be um, certifiable, wouldn't you? Well, there are a lot of, I'm afraid, uh, less than the sane people, and they buy them in, or certainly for their children in droves. But that is what uh, the advertisers and the, uh, and the food producers want. Yes. They want to get a solid base of people who really fall for the sweet and succulent things. And if you start with children, you've got them for life. And it's good marketing technique, if you will, but it's ruinous for the nation's health. I mean, for example, um, I'm very well aware, and I'm not particularly educated <laughs> on food or, or uh, on what's in food, but I'm very well aware, because I've got children, uh, of how difficult uh, it is to, to give them just fruit juice, you know, because the, the, the belief is that fruit juice is very healthy for them. However, you know, I happen to know that it's full of sugar and it can rot their teeth and it can give them an awful lot of carbohydrates that they maybe don't need. So, I mean, if I know that, surely everybody else knows that. Well, everybody else does know that. The problem, however, is that we are all dependent upon what the government does or doesn't do. And for 20 years, we've had a government which is prepared not to do anything because it's in thrall of big business and big food. Mm. The good thing, if there is a, to be a good thing coming out of COVID-19, is that it hit the Prime Minister full in the face. Mm. And he went into intensive care uh, because of his weight, and he came out of intensive care, and he said, I'm going to do something about them. Now, Prime Ministers are well known for saying, I'm going to do this and then do nothing. Mm. But my belief is that this was a personal problem which nearly caused uh, Boris Johnson's death, and he will wake up every morning to think, 
thank God I'm alive, I've got to do something about it. And he's taken off a stone. He's still got more to go before he becomes well, good luck really to healthy. Him. But he's going in the right direction. Well, that's good. That's great news for him. But, I mean, yeah. he's not the father of the nation, you know. He's the Prime Minister who's elected for a short period of time uh, to try and steward the country through an economic uh, nightmare and a pandemic. What he's not been stewarded to do uh, is to tell us all what we should be eating and how we should be exercising. Well, that is that is uh, correct. But, I mean, Boris Johnson used to be a libertarian. But now... Yeah, what happened to him? Well, he, this is his epiphany, uh, that uh, he suddenly realised that, in fact, left to our own devices, uh, i.e. without government interference, we're not doing terribly well. Uh, 65% of the country is overweight or obese. And he's decided that, in fact, he's going to have to do things which will help people live better. Yes. And but why do you think that is, though? Why, If I was to say to you, Tam Fry, the chairman of the Obesity Forum, why are so many people in this country obese? Well, basically sugar. I mean, I, there, there are 45 million other variations of why, but uh, my whole uh, response falls on the fact that we're consuming too much sugar mm. because you pick up the pig and you've got an entrance to sugar straight away. There are sugar in 82% of all the products seen in the shelves of supermarkets in this country, and probably about 70% of them are totally superfluous because sugar does two things. First of all, it loads the calories into the individual. And secondly, it does nothing whatsoever for the nutrition. Yes. But, I mean, for example, in my case, right, I don't eat much of that type of food. I mean, I don't really eat sweets. I mean, this is a very unusual thing for me to have a packet of Percy pigs. I had to get somebody to go out and buy them for me. You know, I don't normally eat those kinds of foods. I don't uh -huh. really eat anything other than food that I cook or food that I eat out in a restaurant. I really don't eat very much junk food. But you would probably describe me as obese. I put it down to the amount of alcohol that I drink uh, and the fact that I gave up smoking about three years ago and I put about a stone and a half on and I haven't really been able to take it off. But I don't eat an awful lot of what you would regard as those kinds of foods with sort of hidden sugar, you know? Well, you may, you may be eating a lot of sugar without knowing about it because, in fact, it's the labelling... Uh, which is another issue. No, but this is what I'm saying. I don't really eat a lot of those types of processed foods. You know, right. I cook my food very assiduously. Uh, I do a, a, a home cooking podcast even, you know, where I, where co I cooked a chicken curry last night from scratch, which didn't have anything in it other than chicken, spices, onion, garlic um, and ginger. Brilliant. You know? Ab absolutely brilliant. But look at me. But you have to remember <laughs> that, uh, well, I, I can't see well, you because my viewphone's not working. I'm sorry. But, uh, but you have to remember that um, about 20% of the country uh, of, of adult age do not know how to cook because domestic science and cookery has been totally eradicated from the learning process for the last 20 years. Mm. Luckily, it's coming back. It is, actually, because my school, yep. my, my kids' secondary school, uh, actually does have a sort of, uh, I don't think they call it home economics anymore, but it does no. have a cooking you know, lesson. No, and th that's absolutely terrific, but their parents didn't. Mm. And, and we have uh, experience of loads of people coming in and saying, I can't cook. The only way I can survive is by eating ready meals and stuff, uh, processed food, and then we put it in the microwave and then we eat it. And the other problem here is that we now also have a proliferation of uh, special offers. 
and the special offers do absolutely nothing for the waistline because people buy special offers thinking, hey, this is wonderful, we mm. got a bargain. And then suddenly they've got excess food, which they don't want to throw away because that's wasteful. What do they do? They eat it mm. and it stays on them. Yes. But, you know, again, I mean, how successful really do you believe this campaign will be? Because I just think that, you know, did you see the lines of, of, of cars when they decided to reopen things like Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's? I mean, people were queuing up for a mile around the block to go and get themselves some fast food. Well, I'm afraid I'm going I'm to have to put you on hold because we won't know whether this particular campaign, which is still unravelling in front of our very eyes, uh, how successful it's going to be. Mm. But you have to remember that the one thing which has been done which I would sing to the uh, uh, praises of, uh, is the sugary drinks uh, levy. Yeah. And that has taken 28% of sugar out of soft drinks in the country. Mm. And we hope, but we don't know yet, that that will have an effect. But it's measures like that which need to be extended. I mean, one thing that uh, Johnson should be looking at is the report sent to him on October by the chief medical officer, uh, Dame Sally Davis, who's, who's now gone on to hire things in academia in, in Cambridge. But she put top of her list that there has to be an extension of the sugary drinks levy because she was absolutely convinced that if you can nail that and you can nail the sugar in breakfast cereals and you can nail the sugar in uh, sweets and cakes and uh, biscuits, then you're uh, on the way to progress. Yes. That doesn't mean to say that we've got to take all sugar out. I don't want to be a killjoy, but actually we get enough sugar from the other foods that we eat where there is natural sugar. Right, because the argument about Percy Pigs, just to go back to it, is that it's mislabelling. And this is where the guy from Leon uh, was critical yesterday. Uh, he says that M&S is guilty of trickery. Uh, he says the practice is ubiquitous. And in the mail today, uh, there's lots of different examples of things like Sainsbury's strawberry laces. They say um, natural flavourings plus fruit concentrates. Uh, they sound healthy, but sadly, they contain glucose and fructose syrup. And an awful lot, and again, a lot of things that I know, uh, I mean, just because it says no added sugar doesn't mean there's no sugar. This means I haven't added any. Correct. And the other thing that uh, is is due for overhaul and is also part of the future part of uh, Boris Johnson's plan is a total revision of the labelling system. Yeah. Because the labelling system in this country is just unbelievable. Clever copywriters from the ad agencies and from the reduction people can just easily write around all the restrictions there might have been, confuse people, make up new names. There are 46 different names for sugar. Yeah. How is anybody going to remember all those 46 and whether, in fact, what they are eating has, uh, has got sugar in it, either a lot, a little, or a moderate amount? So that's going to have to be revised as well. And the good news, if you will, is that now we have left the common market, which actually has control over all the uh, writing on, on product, product packaging. Mm. Now we're free from that. We are free to write our own labelling system. Well, presumably you would have said that their labelling system wasn't worth the paper it was written on. It uh, was uh, hugely influenced by the uh, industry. Right. 
And the moment that industry influence something, you do what they call. Yeah. But in fact, what the Europeans have done now is to take our system, the traffic light system, and actually develop it into a much more comprehensive system, which I'm sure will be looked at in detail when we come around to uh, revising yes. our own labelling. I mean, on the other side of the argument, uh, apparently, these uh, Marks and Spencer's uh, uh, Percy Pigs make the company about 20 million quid a year. So, I mean, you, you're not surely expecting them to give up that kind of revenue. No, they're not. They'll fight tooth and nail. And anything which suggests that government is interfering with big business gets a whole shoal of lobbying, very highly paid little lobby experts uh, going down to Downing Street and saying, you can't do this, you yeah. can't do that. No, of course. And that's why I worry about whether or not there's any point to it, because there might be more point if you really want to take this thing seriously. It's a bit like the smoking argument. You want to make smoking uh, illegal, do it. Don't just tell people not to smoke and tax the ones who do or uh, do the same with food. If you want to stop people from ta from eating, you know, what you think is bad for them, then surely you just tax the hell out of it, don't you? One thing that uh, has driven me for the last 25 years when I've been doing this is that uh, there is always the possibility that the mood will change. Mm. And uh, my belief is that COVID-19 has really got to people and they are starting to understand that uh, the, the country is too heavy or they are too heavy and that if they have a better chance of recovery from COVID-19, then they should slim down. Mm. That hasn't happened before. So there's always something new which you've got to latch on to and see if it'll work in your favour. OK. Well, Tam, listen, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for talking to us. Tam, for our chair of the National Obesity Forum, he says it's going to be too uh, far into the future before we find out whether this particular campaign by the Downing Street uh, machine is going to be worthwhile. My feeling is, is that it's not really the government's job to tell us what to do in terms of what we eat, in terms of how we spend our leisure time, in terms of what we do when we're inside our own homes. I really don't think it's any of their business. You know, I'd rather live in a country where we have freedom of choice. If you really want to make something hard to buy then make it too expensive to buy, would be my word. Um, but I'm going to have another one of these Percy Pigs, because they're rather good. Um, and, um, you know, now that the story's come out, maybe I'm going to start eating them. So it's had the completely opposite effect. Dear me. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I've still got the Percy Pigs. We're going to do some homeschooling coming up uh, very shortly uh, in which I'm going to be told, uh, or taught, I should say, uh, how to tie some knots. I'm quite good at tying people up in knots. We'll see how I do with tying actual knots. We shall see. Uh, let's go now, though, to America, to uh, San Diego, to be precise, uh, with LaDonna Harvey from KOGO uh, Breakfast Radio. Uh, LaDonna, very good morning to you. And a very good morning to you, Mr. Graham. Thank you very much indeed. Now, um, I've just been eating some sweets, so forgive me if I have some kind of sugar rush going on at the moment because uh, we've got a new <laughs> new campaign to, uh, to make everybody lose weight because Boris Johnson lost weight and saved his own life, so he wants everybody else to do it now, which is the worst kind of politicians as far as I'm concerned. I was uh, rather surprised yesterday to see the luminaries of people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and the head of Google, whose name I forget, uh, all sort of lining up to speak to uh, Congress. Uh, about what good guys they are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, all they are is just business guys. They're yeah. business guys on a on a different level from you and me, but they're still just business guys. Uh, and Congress wants to break up their businesses. 
So, right. yeah, it behooves them to go talk to Congress and try to convince them not to do so. Yeah. I mean, it did strike me as a slightly unusual meeting because, one, it was sort of being done on Zoom or, or Skype or something like that. Uh, and two, um, these people are so powerful and so rich that it's almost like they don't really need anybody uh, to, to either stop their business. I mean, even I mean, if you said to Mark Zuckerberg today, you will never make any more money in your life, it wouldn't matter. No, it wouldn't. It really wouldn't. Um, it, you know, and we have this thing with monopolies here. Uh, you know, back in the day, we used to have Ma Bell, and that was like the one yeah. telephone company right. around the country that you had to go and you went to their store and bought their telephones. Strangely, once the governor, once the government stepped in and broke up Ma Bell, which is now known as AT&T, um, <laughs> they made it more expensive for all the rest of us. So I, I you know, I am, I am not a fan of government getting involved in business. No. If somebody doesn't want to do business with Jeff Bezos and Amazon, they don't want to, you know, if they've got the money, and there are plenty of people who do, they can serve their own damn company and 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 compete with them. Well, exactly do right. It. And I mean, the trouble is, of course, they can't. I mean, at the end of the day, Facebook um, is so big that nobody can really compete with it. Same goes for Amazon now, doesn't it? I, no, I don't think so. No. I don't think so at all. Um, there's a there's an ebb and flow to business and what you are willing to tolerate as an American. And people will find other ways if they decide they don't want to do business with Amazon. They won't. Right. No, sure, I get that. But what I'm saying is, is that it would be very hard for anybody else to start up a rival business to, to Amazon now in terms of how established they are and what they can do. I don't know. You've got Alibaba in China, and if they were to expand into the United States, that probably uh, would would put a real crimp in in Bezos's business. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that it's absolutely possible that you could start a competitor. This is absolutely. why. This is why you've got to love America because it is absolutely kind of cold, hard capitalism, unlike this country, which seems to have got a bit soft. I well, again, so I don't know about you guys, um, but I know about us, and and Americans are a flinty bunch, yeah. um, as as you well know. From you know, we we don't like it when you mess with our tea, uh, <laughs> and we certainly don't like it when when anybody messes with with our finances. No. And if we feel that that we're not getting value for our dollar, we will find another way. That's why Bezos got so big with Amazon, but. You know, it's, these things don't last forever. They just don't. Right. Somebody will come up with a better idea. They always do. Yes, absolutely right. Now, what about Portland, which doesn't strike me as a better idea? What is going on up there? Because I saw some footage the other day uh, of some of the, the, the demonstrations, which are now not really, you can't really call them demonstrations. It looks like a war zone. Yeah, no, it's not a demonstration. Now it's just, you know, pure anarchy. Mm. Uh, and Portland uh, Portland is its own kind of place. <laughs> it's a weird, weird spot. Yeah. And, very, and very lovely. I love Portland. Uh, but I would never live there because I hate chaos. Right. And, you know, when you've got a bunch of basically, you know, teenagers and 20-year-olds burning down your city, yeah. you, need to get a, you need to get some kind of a handle on it. Well, who's going to gonna get a grip of it? Because it's not going to be a federal uh, situation, is it? Well, it already is a federal situation. They've been going after the federal courthouse. So Trump sent in federal officers, which really, you know, uh, stokes the fires in Portland saying, you know, we'll deal with our own problem. Right. No, you won't. You're not dealing with your problem. So if you can't handle it, the feds will and they'll squash it like a grape. Yes. Well, I, I mean, where will it end, though? And how much longer do we have to see what's going on there? 
That's a really good question. Um, you know, somebody has to grow a pair over in Portland and say, mm. okay, enough is enough. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're a pandering bunch. And, you know, anytime you have one-party rule, and that happens here in California all the way up the West Coast, anytime you have one-party rule, you have nobody who is out there saying, you know, maybe we need to put a check on this. <laughs> yes. Uh, but eventually business owners and people who are getting burned out are going to rebel and they're going to say, I'm not going to support you anymore. And we're going to do some changes and they'll see an influx of people who are maybe a little bit more conservative and maybe a little less apt to put up with children uh, running their city. Yes, quite. Uh, Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the election, the presidential election coming up because you're getting into August very shortly. And I suppose there's going to be proper, um, may not be actual kind of uh, nominations done in the way that they were done, no conventions and all that. But presumably, Joe Biden, who doesn't seem to know where he is these days, is definitely going to get the Democratic nomination. Oh, he absolutely is. Um, He is the presumptive nominee. There's really nobody else on the Democratic side outside of Kanye. And, you know, (laughs) you got that going for you. Um, That, you know, is an alternative. Uh, So, yeah, Joe Biden's going to get the nomination and he's probably doing the smart thing which is kind of laying back and letting this thing play out the way that it's going to play out. Mm. So when he's actually running against the president, he can say, hey, look, he didn't handle this very well. So you should vote for me. Yeah, the <laughs> trouble... He doesn't really have to do anything. No, the, the trouble is, though, when he, whenever he does anything, like he did uh, the other night and, and announced himself to be in the wrong place, whenever he does anything, it sort of knocks back his popularity because people go, hang on a minute, are we sure about this guy? Well, exactly. Um, You know, I think that's there is something to be said. And I say this as somebody who's in her, you know, (laughs) 50s, that at some point you've kind of aged out of the process. Uh, You know, not to say that that people who are older cannot be incredibly vital members of society, but you need to be able to prove that. And Biden seems to be stumbling quite a bit. He does. Donald Trump is the same. Donald Trump is the same Donald Trump that he's always been. Right. So he hasn't changed at all. You right. know, he's still. And Biden will be in his. Eight, I mean, where, Biden where will be can. in well into his 80s if he actually wins when he's in the White House. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And that's a you know, that's a it's a it's a concern. I think it's a concern with Trump, too, because he's not a spring chicken. Uh, you know, we have two very, very old men running for president, and the chances are that whoever their vice president is going to be will have a very good chance of attaining office. So yes. that's the one you have to watch out for. Yes. And who's currently uh, your kind of pick for, for, for either of those spots, vice president-wise? Ooh, uh, well, Mike Pence will still be on uh, on Trump's ticket okay? because uh, he doesn't do anything to make waves. Mm. But with Biden, it's still open. He's saying that he's not going to say who it is just yet. He says it will be a woman. I suspect it will be a woman of color. I don't know who, though. (laughs) Maybe Susan Rice? Maybe. Right. Well, we shall see. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much indeed. LaDonna Harvey uh, reporting into us from San Diego, California, uh, with the latest news from the United States of America. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.